Delighted to have you with us this morning uh, for all our regular folks as well as those who are visiting with us this morning. If you're visiting, we'll hope you will come back and see us again. Uh, we are in a study of the Gospel of Matthew. It's been put on hold for a couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, we held the memorial service for Tom Lively here during the morning service. It's not a regular way of us doing that, but it just happened to work out in the timing. Uh, Tom has now been enjoying the glories of heaven for a few weeks. And if I were to say, Tom, would you like to come back? No, he would, he would not. The Lord is the one who controls all those uh, timings. And then last week, some call it Easter. I prefer to call it Resurrection Day. It's the first day of the week, the day our Lord rose from the dead. And if that event had not taken place, we would still be dead in our sins. So this morning we return to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and I'm just going to preach one week. And then I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Dylan Fraser for four weeks. So you go, why are you doing that? Because Mr. Dylan Fraser is in the doctoral program. He just finished what I consider one of the hardest papers that he had, to, doctoral papers he had to write. It would, I took that course with him on Messianic uh, Prophecy. And I don't have to write the papers. I just uh, enjoyed the class. He had to write the paper. And he finished that one. Now he's in another course, and it's uh, a doctoral course on preaching. So he has to prepare four manuscripts, intro, conclusion, all that kind of stuff, and, uh, and preach them. So I told him, when you're ready, you let me know. I'll stop and turn it over to you for four weeks. So we're going to hit Matthew. Then Dylan will preach for four weeks, and I'll come back and pick up again on... Uh, uh, Matthew again. But let me tell you something when Dylan is preaching. One of the worst things I ever saw, in my opinion, um, I was in, in a church one time and the pastor wanted to train men um, how to analyze a sermon. And so he gave them all the, this instructions and you know what it did? It turned them critical. And um, so Dylan has to do this, but he is preaching for our edification. So pray for that young man as he, as he prepares and, and comes and preaches to us. So we're going to look at this morning lessons on faith in one day of healings, and we're going to return to Matthew chapter 8. Now, if you have ever tried to put together the Synoptic Gospels along with John and try and determine the chronology, what takes place. It's not an easy exercise because sometimes they, they all follow a loose chronological pattern. They're all headed to the Passion Week, the final narrative, because that's where they all head with the, with the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, His vicarious atonement for guilty sinners, His resurrection from the dead. Uh, Matthew actually has bookends around it. Um, it starts this way. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And then we're going to conclude with the other bookend. Jesus says, 
Lo, I am with you, with you always. And in between, Matthew, uh, the former tax collector, despised by his own people, sitting at the toll booth up there near Capernaum, and Jesus came along and said, follow me, follow me. And he made him fisher, one of the fishers of men. And that's what he's doing in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to turn this morning then to chapter 8. We just started several weeks ago and looking at the Jewish leper. I will look at that, then we'll go to a Gentile centurion slave, Peter's mother-in-law, a summary of some miraculous events, and then we'll wrap it up this morning, Lord willing, <coughs> with the theological importance of Isaiah 53.4. Why does he quote from that and apply that to the healings that uh, Matthew says that Jesus was, was doing? So... Um, Lessons on trust on a day of miraculous healings. But I'm also aware that unless God is the true teacher, then we're, we're just busyness. We're just a social gathering. So I want to pause, acknowledge our dependence upon God, and ask him to be the true instructor. Lord God in heaven above, thank you for each person present this morning. We look on the outer appearance. You look upon the heart. You know our minds, what we're thinking. You know our motives. You know our consciences. You know our wills. You know everything about us. And so we pray that you would work in the heart of each person present. We thank you that we have a great throne of mercy and grace to come before the Lord Jesus Christ, who was tempted in all points, yet without sin. So we come before him this morning. May our worship be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by way of introduction with the importance of faith. Actually, everyone has faith. Um, Atheistic uh, people have faith. They trust in their own mind. A synonym for faith is just the word trust, and what are you in what are you trusting? We're reminded from Hebrews of the importance of faith in God and His Word. Biblical faith always has an object, and it's never yourself in biblical faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. So faith, when we're worshiping this morning, I have no doubt that there's a God in heaven, that there's a spiritual realm, and that we cannot yet see with the visible eye, but we will one day see it by sight. And for by this kind of faith, people of old receive God's commendation. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed or set in order at God's command. Nobody was there except for God, and he told us how he did it. And without faith, this kind of faith set forth in Hebrews, particular Hebrews 1.1. Times past, piecemeal fashion, little bit, bit by bit, 
but in these last days God has spoken to us in such a very person as his own dear son who accomplished redemption. And it's that kind of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. One who approaches him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. When Michael read the opening scripture, I think for me that's the clearest, simplest description, descriptive definition of faith in the entire Bible. Abraham, 99 years old, at that point did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Here it is. (coughs) He was fully convinced that what the G, the D got left off there. God had promised, and that's my fault, not secretary. I made this one up. Um, that what God had promised, he was also able to do. So you have to know what God has said. You have to know the book. And you have to believe it. And so indeed it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. But the statement was credit to him was not written for Abraham's sake only, but also for our sake to whom it will be credited those who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So as we study through Matthew, the question is not do you have faith, but in whom is your faith placed? Biblical faith has an object, and it's not ourselves, but God. A person believes into Jesus Christ. The emphasis in the New Testament is not letting Jesus into your heart while he does dwell in us. I'm not saying those statements don't occur, but the emphasis in the New Testament is that we, by faith, need to get out of ourselves and into Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Luther, the basic problem is that we're trusting in our own resources, not in the resources that are found in Jesus Christ. There's one particular phrase where it says to believe into Christ Jesus, and it uses a uh, preposition that says, Pistuane ace. Christon, to believe into Christ. You are actually transferring something out of yourself into him, reliance upon him. The Greek grammarians tell us that that little expression found in the New Testament, into Christ, is found nowhere else in classical literature. The Christian believes into Jesus Christ, and that is the dimension of our union with him. Now, as we return here to our study of Matthew, we have looked at Jesus has been set forth as uh, the promised Messiah, Greek equivalent, Christ, he's Emmanuel. This is Jesus who saves us from our sins, but he only saves people who put their faith and trust in him. If you don't put your faith and trust in him, then you are not saved from your sins. So we looked at the introduction, and then we came to the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, the most important sermon that has ever been 
preached. And there we have the authoritative words of Jesus Christ. It wraps up in Matthew chapter 7 this way. Jesus says, you're either building your life upon me and my words. That's the solid rock. And if you're not doing that, you are building your life upon sinking sand. And storms are going to come along and you're just going to be washed away. And then eventually, we're all, every person will have to one day stand before Jesus Christ. You're either going to be clothed in His righteousness or you're going to be clothed in your own filthy rags and you will perish eternally. So those are the authoritative words. And then we have this transition. If you look in the text at 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were stunned at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. It's not the school of Hillel says this, the school of Shammai says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Jesus says, these are my words. This is my teaching. You need to pay attention uh, to this. And so there's going to be five major sections in the Gospel of Matthew, and they'll all go in this similar manner. There'll be the, the words, the teaching of Jesus, and then it'll have a transitional statement like this, and it'll go to the authoritative works of Jesus. Remember John the Baptist when uh, he was put in prison? And he had been preaching judgment. The axe is laid to the root. And he's thinking, well, when is this going to fall? And it's not falling. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus. He didn't really question whether he was the Messiah per se, but what kind of a Messiah are you? Are, are we supposed to look for another person? Are, are you the coming one? You remember what he told John? Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the very first one here recorded by Matthew, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. So when we, when we walk through these authoritative works of Jesus Christ, the question that faces each one of us is, who is this man? Who is this man? Is he just a miracle healer? Or are his works pointing to his identity as prophesied in the Old Testament? Jesus said it this way, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, uh, Matthew doesn't always follow a strict chronological order, but I suspect here in this text, at least 1 through 16, um, some scholars do take this as a chronological order. Others think that the uh, centurion one, because when you look at the Gospels, they're not always placed at the same way. But perhaps here, this is an uh, order of events. So when you look at the conclusion in 28 and 29, Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount. He's on the other side of Galilee, a little north of Capernaum, and he's coming down and great crowds are following him. And then we have the first encounter of the leper, this unclean 
leper. It's going to be followed by the Gentile centurion slave, the Jewish woman. Uh, nine miracles are going to be set forth, and interspersed in these are also calls for discipleship. The implication. So if, if Jesus is really this person, what are the implications for all those who call upon him? Um, we're to treat him as Lord. So we saw the cleansing of a Jewish leper, chapter 8. Can, can you imagine the crowds following him and a leper is supposed to cry out what? Unclean, unclean. And you could see the crowd starting to, to part away from Jesus as it's kind of making a wave coming down through and thinking, who is this guy? He's not supposed to be around us. And he comes right up uh, to Jesus. Lord, he knelt down before him. He didn't act presumptuousness. He didn't say, you must do this. He said, if you will, if you are willing, I know you can make me clean. See, that's faith. That's faith. It's believing that God has the ability to do what he promised. But he never told that leper in particular that he would heal him. He's looking around at what Jesus is doing. He's healed others. And so he says, Lord, if you would do that. And in the other gospel accounts, it says the Lord had compassion upon him. He was merciful to him. His pitiful existence covered with leprosy, whether that was Hansen's disease or another type of skin disease, I'm not sure. And uh, he's prostrate on his face. The tense there says, these are urgent pleas. You could hear him. If you're willing, if you're willing, if you're willing, and the Lord just stops him. And says, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing. Now notice how the healing takes place. All he has to do is speak. It's his word. Just be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, just like that. So we look at this account, it's going to tell a lot about your worldview. If you rule out the supernatural, then you're going to rule out what is here in the Scripture. But it shows the condition of your heart before God breathed Scripture. Yes, men did write the book. But we also know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that God is the ultimate author, that he directed their thoughts on what we have is exactly what God wants us to do. And so Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. Go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to you. Now if we look at the other Gospels, that's not what he did. I mean, can you imagine Jesus... He touched him. That actually word means to grasp him. So Jesus would become unclean. No, the very word and touch made him whole. I wonder when the last time he had a hug from his wife, from his children. When's the last time he saw him? He's supposed to be outside, away from them. And I would be jumping up and down for joy too, going a while, hey, look at me. But it, he was disobedient. And sometimes when we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're so excited about having the forgiveness of our sin that we have to learn from Scripture 
what it means to obey him, to be involved in discipleship. So what do we learn from that? The genuine compassion of the Lord, his firm hand on the leper, his spoken word, and his stern commands, go, show, offer. Now, before we hit to the uh, synagogue, the, the next one here in Mark, in Matthew, I want you to turn over what was, appears to be the next event. And if you'll flip over to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, because if Mark certainly here, many think this is uh, parallel to that. And so now he's come down, he's healed the leper, and he's going into Capernaum into the synagogue. So this event is going to be between, in Matthew chapter 8, between, after the healing of the leper and before the event with the centurion. So he enters the synagogue on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. Now remember, this takes place from in the evening, that's how the time is counted, to the following evening when the sun goes down. And so, uh, he, and they would enter in on the, the synagogue. Um, these are some pictures. A number of us have been there uh, a number of times. If you go to Israel, one of the great places that you want to see along the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. It's called uh, actually Kafir Nahum, the, the city of or village of Nahum, not necessarily the prophet Nahum. And you'll see there the white remains of the synagogue, and then there is a Franciscan church that is built over Peter's house, so you really can't see Peter's house very, very well. Um, there's an aerial view of the synagogue from the north. Now, this is very helpful, at least to me, because this, that Franciscan church was built there in the 1980s. So I have a picture there that was taken before that modern church was uh, constructed. So you just have the base around there, the walls and different things, the roof would have caved in. But many scholars are thoroughly convinced that this actually is probably the remains of Peter's house there uh, at uh, Capernaum. Um, there's, there's, and it, it's a beautiful little town when uh, uh, you enter uh, into there. Um, so being, the, now remember, he had changed his location. Uh, both uh, uh, Andrew and Peter were from Bethsaida, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they evidently have relocated here, and this would be the headquarters for their fishing uh, village. Um, there we're standing in, inside of that. I, I just looked at some of these pictures, and I reminded myself what a blessing it was to go with you folks. Some of them are already now uh, enjoying the glories uh, of heaven. Um, now, if you look down here at the base, the one up above, the, ah, that finger's moving too fast. If you look down at the base, I won't touch it or I'll flip it out of the, the dark stones at the bottom, they're basalt. And that is probably the original foundation of the synagogue that was there at the time of Jesus. So, 
this is, this is uh, an important event. He comes down, he's healed the leper, and he goes in to the synagogue. So let's look at what happens there in uh, Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 21. And I take it from 21 through uh, all the way down through verse 34 is all occurring in one day, and that's how I fit Matthew into this as well. So they went into Capernaum, and immediately on Shabbat, he entered the synagogue, and what was he doing? He was teaching. And again, they were astonished at his teaching, amazed, because just like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught them as one who had authority, this key word over and over again in the Gospels, authority, authority. Who is this man who can do these things? So his works are pointing to his identity. You better pay attention to this man. And now I've had some strange things happen during a preaching service, but often in the synagogue, there could be an interaction um, between the people as they're reading the, the, the scroll. I was preaching at, uh, uh, I think it was Pacific uh, Rescue Mission there in Chicago, and I was still a newbie, and they, were, they, they were trying to disciple me, and, and uh, a fight broke out between the guys. I think they were a little sloshed, and uh, so um, I'm, I'm going, okay, what do I do now? You know, oh, they came out, they got it under control, separated the guys, and I'm just kind of standing. They go, okay, what do I do now? They go, well, keep preaching. But it's not, uh, I was at a Q&A one time, and they are asking John MacArthur some of the strange things that happened in his church. He said, one time, a guy in fatigues came crawling down on his elbows and his knees, and he had what looked like a machine gun there. This is before all the church shootings. He said the deacons went over and jumped on him immediately. Here was a toy gun. I don't know, you know, what, what he thought he was uh, going to do, but that was certainly disruptive. He said he was baptizing uh, folks, and this guy got in with his, with his robe from the lady's side, and he looks down, and he could see a little bit. He goes, what are you doing here? He says, you're a man. He says, no. He says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Can you imagine that as you're about ready to do a baptism? And he said, oh, no, you are not. He said, and you will not be baptized. You need to get out of here and repent. But I submit this one, this one here. Wow. Jesus is teaching, and watch what happens. And immediately, not as the scribes, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. It's just another term for a demon. And he cries out. Now I take it they're using the vocal cords of the person whom they indwell. And they say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Think about all those people in the synagogue. How shocked they must have been. And what does Jesus do? He rebuked him. He rebuked him. Two imperatives. 
Be silent. It's, it's a term for telling a dog to be, you know, muzzling a dog. Just, just be silent and come out of him. And look what's happened. Immediately the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, if you were asleep that particular synagogue, you're awake now, believe me. And you're going, what, what, what just happened? Who, who is this guy who commanded? And the unclean spirits immediately respond. Remember the sons of, seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts? So they saw exorcisms and, and they tried it. And the demons go, now I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. And bam, he got, he got beat up. Um, he commands and they obey. Th what kind of authority is this? There is nothing in this universe that he does not command and control, including the world that we cannot yet see with the visible eye. Jesus is in control of it all. So they were amazed. And, and they look at one another and say, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they do what? They obey him. <clears throat> so we have it in verse 22, authority. We have it there in verse 27, authority. And his fame at once spread throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now I'll flip back to Matthew because I take that took place in the, the synagogue. And now apparently he's coming out of the synagogue and we have this event with the Centurion, and I need to find my notes here again. A centurion, uh, and, and they weren't always uh, uh, Roman. Um, you could be different ethnicity at least until AD 44, then consistently in Galilee they would have been uh, Romans, but a uh, um, he was at least a minimum a Gentile. A centurion was between a decurion who led ten men and a kiliarch who had a thousand soldiers. Um, now they weren't always highly respected in the Roman world. Perseus, in his satires, he paints a general picture that they were uneducated and cultured and uncultured. They probably had a pretty good vocabulary. When I went in the military and boot camp, I was amazed. I heard some words I never heard before. But I did respond and obey them. Um, I saw what happens if you don't. And so this man uh, commands a hundred soldiers, and but the ones on the pages of the New Testament are of a different kind than Perseus describes. And in general, a centurion was well paid. Uh, a denarius was a day's wage for a common unskilled worker, and it formed the backbone of the Roman currency throughout the Roman Empire. Um, writing in the second century B.C., Polybius estimated a soldier's pay uh, 
would be uh, equivalent to 120 denario for the year. Um, for a cavalryman's pay at 180, now, you know, depending upon where you're at, the buying value of that would vary. But the lowest paid soldier only earns 75 denarii per year, but a centurion, he earned between 3,500 and 7,500 uh, denarii. So they're general wealthy, and that makes sense in terms of what we see, uh, what was going to uh, happened here. Remember the uh, Cornelius in Acts 10 and the description of him? Um, apparently was uh, a God-fearer. He was a just man, one who fears God, has a good reputation. Um, end of uh, the Gospels, Luke 23, Mark 15, 39, talking about the same event. Who, who was standing there observing what was taking place at the cross when Jesus died. It was a centurion. And he, and he saw when Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So not, a, not every Roman soldier uh, was out there to uh, treat uh, the Jewish people in a wicked way. You know, the, I'm sure they had to watch out for the Sicarii, you know, the, the Jewish zealots. They would carry the Sicarii's the, the small dagger underneath you, and so you don't want to go down an alley with one of those guys because they'd like to stick it in a Roman soldier's uh, back or in his gut. But we, we come to this centurion, and he came forward to him appealing to Jesus Lord, my servant. Now, the word here for a servant is a word for, also a word for a young boy. We're going to look in, in uh, Mark, he's actually going to be called a doulos, a, a slave. So he's probably a personal, a young personal servant um, for this centurion. And he is lying. That word means cast down. He's, he's in this condition. In other words, he can't get up on his own. Um, he's paralyzed at home, and he's suffering terribly. Now, here's one of the reasons why when you're studying through the Gospels, you want to make a careful comparison of the accounts because if you're not careful, you'll be hit with liberals who will say, see, the, these are... Um, you." you the Gospels conflict with one another. So keep your finger there, but turn over to Luke chapter 7. Because Mark, I will call it, he telescopes the event. In other words, he doesn't give all the details of what is happening, so he doesn't describe what we have here in Luke chapter 7. When actually... Uh, you ever see a presidential address, you know, and the president said such and such, and I was listening to it, and I go, where'd you get that from? Well, in the Gospels, we are assured that these are the words of God because it's God-breathed Scripture. But when we turn over, we see what actually took place, Luke chapter 7. And notice also the uh, placement of this, this in Luke is right after the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And we had that same transition. He had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. He entered Capernaum. Then I take the event in the synagogue. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And it was highly valued by him. Um, I take it the, the value there is not because he was one of his slaves and he was afraid he would, he would lose him. He, he, he was a, this is a good centurion. And he valued uh, this young boy. And so when the centurion heard about Jesus, Luke says he said, well, he did say, but he said it by sending him elders of the Jews, ask him to come and heal his servant. The slave is near death. He's paralyzed. His life is hanging by a thread. And uh, with his slave's life hanging in the balance, he decides to take action. He heard about Jesus, unlike Naaman the Syrian. He believes that Jesus can heal his servant. Now, he, a Gentile, may have been somewhat hesitant to ask a Jewish teacher, so he sends Jewish friends on his behalf. His friends are elders of the Jews, may have been synagogue leaders or Jewish civil leaders. And uh, so here, here is a man, a Gentile man, who, as far as we know, has never even personally met Jesus. He has just heard about the reports about what he is doing. So they come to Jesus and they plead for his behalf. They plead with him strongly, earnestly, and saying, now watch their estimate of this man and watch his own estimate that follows. So they say, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. He is the one who built us our synagogue. And that's why I brought in the amount of uh, annual pay that a centurion would receive. He probably had the, evidently had the ability to do this. And so the elders vigorously lobby on his behalf. They give commendations uh, for him. He loves our nation. He even built a synagogue for us. And so Jesus starts out to go with them to this man's house, and he's not far from his house and a second delegation gets sent. Now, this, to me, is one of the most striking events in the entire gospel narratives about a Gentile. He just, he just heard about Jesus. He knew that he had the ability to heal his servant. Notice those who claim, if you're not healed today, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Look, the slave, the servant... It's not about him at all. It's about the centurion in his faith who is interceding on behalf of his slave. And so he's not far from his house. The centurion hears that he's coming, and he sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I didn't presume to come to you for that, that reason. Now, here it is. But say the word. Just say the word. 
Unlike the leper, you don't even have to grasp them by the hand. You don't even have to be there. You just say the word and let my servant be healed. And now he's going to give a reason why he believes that. He says, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, if you were in the military and you turn around and you tell one of your commanding officers, they tell you, go, and you go, no, and you say, do it, and you say, ain't going to do it. They have a place for people like that. It's called the brig. I, I was, uh, when I was at Camp Lejeune, um, they, they assigned me out there um, to this place, and uh, believe me, they wished they had said yes. And so he, he, he said, hey, but me and my authority, I can't do something like that. I can't heal my servant. I don't have command in the supernatural realm. Um, I'm, I'm not even worthy that you would come in to my house. All he does here, he has faith that simply Jesus can command and it will be done. And this is a key point for us who no longer have Jesus' physical, visible presence with us. Is he, is he able to do that? I can't see him. I know he's up in heaven. When I pray to him, uh, is my prayer a useless, senseless exercise? Or does the God in heaven really hear even though I can't see him visibly? Am, am I taking him at his word? Here is a soldier, a centurion of the world's most significant army, and he compliments the authority of Jesus. This is only one of two texts where Jesus is actually amazed in his humanity. This unique faith recognizes the authority of Jesus, the power of his word, not only over illness, but in light of distance, without spatial limitations. So what do we have? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So, so what's Matthew doing? He's pulling this incident out. Out of all the healings that Jesus did, he says, I want you to focus on this one. Who is this man? Who is this man? If he has authority there, you better listen to the authority of his words. And Mark is a gospel of, of action. He doesn't have all the parables, all the teaching. But Mark 1.15 begins this way. When he summarizes the teaching of Jesus, he said, Jesus said this, The time has been fulfilled. Repent and believe in the good news. So I, I don't know what all he was teaching in in the synagogue and other places, but that was the basis of the message. You need to turn from your sin, and you need to on ace Christon, transfer your trust into him, onto him. That's not merely an intellectual exercise. You are transferring your trust off of yourself, out of yourself, 
onto Jesus Christ. And what do we have today? I don't have him here. I have his word. His word is sufficient. You can believe his word. He's trustworthy. And it's shown in what he's doing. Now, I want you to flip back to Matthew 8 then and look at the ending there. Because there's a warning, a warning. So these people are following him. And he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and the sons of the kingdom. He's talking about those uh, of Jewish descent, of Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness. Who spoke more about hell than anybody else? In the New Testament, Jesus himself did. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a warning to the Jewish pharisaical leaders that said they sought to justify themselves before God. I was coming home Monday evening, and I was saddened to see that. I they go out on uh, 691, and I'm going to turn up 1417 to our house, and the intersection was all blocked off. There were a number of emergency vehicles there, and I, I looked out, and I saw the remnants of a motorcycle, and then I saw a pickup that was lying on its side. Um, uh, this young man came down through there, ran the red light. Uh, uh, truck was going through. And he broadsided uh, that pickup. He hit it so hard, he knocked the pickup on its side. And I, when I see them out there taking, taking measurements, I know as a medic, because sometimes I had to go out there, and you're, you're, you're out to a fatal, a fatal accident. I thought to myself, I don't know where this young man is. But here's the warning for each one of us. You know what breath you're assured of? It's the one you are presently taking. I'm sure that young man had no idea when he was driving down 1417, he was about to take his last breath. So, so here, who, who is this man? Who alone can forgive sins? Jesus said, which is easier to say, take up your pallet and walk, or your sins are forgiven? Well, to say legitimately your sins are forgiven, you need to trust in Him. You don't want mere profession. You don't want to be one day when you stand before Him and you call Him Lord, Lord, and He says, depart from me. I have never known you, you who practice anomia, lawlessness. So true repentance, you turn from sin and you go into Christ. You trust Him. You embrace Him. If that has not taken place and you have a profession, it's an empty profession. You want a profession with a true possession of saving faith, and that is what this text is pointing us to. That's what these works are all about. Read them. Consider them. This man is worthy of your trust. Now we go to the next one in Matthew, and that's the healing... Uh, of not only Peter's mother-in-law, but a number number uh, there. This is uh, a 
One of the great records in Scripture, when you look at uh, Jesus was going around and he had a group of women following him as well who supported him. You see the distinction in uh, the New Testament. I don't know of Peter's uh, mother-in-law. We don't even know uh, the name of Peter's wife. <laughs> uh, tradition has that she was uh, later crucified uh, as, as long as uh, Peter. And I read, to me, this is like inquiring minds to know. You know what the National Enquirer is? And so I read these things, and they give all kind of anecdotes and historical, and I don't, you know, they could even tell you his mother-in-law's name, Glaphis, that she was an immoral woman. I go, no, I'm sticking with the text here. And the text is very succinct. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, so we're at Capernaum. It's just a short walk from the synagogue to the house. And he comes in, and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick. Now, if we looked at Mark, we're going to learn that Peter, James, and John, uh, or Peter and Andrew, James and John, were along with them. I take it that uh, her daughter was probably there taking care of her mother, and she has L Dr. Luke in his account. He, he calls it not only a fever, but he uses an adjective, mega. She had a mega fever. She was burning up. The, the highest fever I, I ever saw one time, it was, a, you know, you have sick bay, and, and so um, you're supposed to make the rounds and take the vitals, etc. So I come up, and here was a, here's a Marine. He had come back from Vietnam. We're in, we were in the States at this time. And uh, I just looked at him. He, he, he was shaking, and I had to get him to hold still so I could get the thermometer. You know, we, we didn't have the little devices like you have now. And uh, took his temperature and pulled it out. It was 106 degrees. And I let the head doctor know. He says, quick. So we ran cold water in a tub, filled it with ice, and uh, dumped him in there. Uh, took a little while. Uh, his temperature came down. He was trying to get some fluids in him. And uh, actually what happened, he had contracted malaria in Vietnam, and he had another outbreak of it. And as far as I know, can remember, he did recover from that. He didn't suffer uh, any uh, internal damage or brain damage. So I don't know. Luke just says this is, this is a mega fever. And what's Jesus going to do? We'll look at the text. He touched her hand. This is the same thing. He grasped her hand, and I think Luke has, he, he picked her up, and the fever left her just like that. No cold water, no, no ice, no nothing, no internal meds. It, it left just like that. And to show how sudden this was, she got up, and she goes, you know, I, I need to sleep this one off. Boy, that was pretty bad. You know, I need to get my vitality back. Give me two days of rest, and then I'll come out and serve. Instantly, her vitality, her strength returned. And she began to serve him. The other text, not only him, but others. I take it it's evening, so probably prepared a meal for them. And now it's after, so after uh, sunset, Shabbat is over, and now they're going, because 
most people would be afraid to bring somebody to, to Jesus for healing on Shabbat because of the religious rulers and their tradition. And, you know, they not only castigated Jesus because they didn't want to be cast out of the synagogue, but now it's over. And so they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits. How? Just a word. He just spoke it. And he healed all who were sick. Who? Who is this man who can do this? His works authenticate his words. And his words is, I am Emmanuel. I am Jesus who saves his people from their sins. Trust in me, and you will not perish. And if you don't trust in me, you'll be cast out forever, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is dead serious. Trust me, trust me. And now it's going to conclude with the importance of Isaiah 53, 4, and 5, and the theological importance of uh, this particular verse. When I was taking the course with uh, Dylan on Messianic prophecy, uh, it, it was pointed out, if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, if, if you go to Jewish interpretation today, they will say that's not an individual, that's true of the nation. But the prop there pointed out that never took place until that interpretation, until Rabbi Kimchi in the 10th century uh, uh, A.D. who wrote commentaries on, on this. The passage runs like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we were esteem, yet we esteemed him stricken. They, di they didn't esteem him. They didn't value him. They didn't think he was important. In fact, here's the most important person in the entire world. He's the servant of the Lord. Smitten by God and afflicted, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. So he's saying, by his stripes we are healed. His wounds inflicted by the Roman soldiers, scourgings, his subsequent death are the means of healing believers' spiritual wounds in salvation. But what about physical wounds? Well, at that time, if you would have been brought to Jesus, he healed. He healed all who came to him. So why don't I have that privilege today? Look, everybody that was healed, they eventually died. So the question comes about, is there healing in the atonement? And my answer is yes. But you don't get it all now. This is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen eventually. And you don't get your resurrection body now. When you die either, there are things. So all these healings performed by Jesus are the result of the atonement. Yes, to whatever degree we experience healing in this life, it's the fruit of Christ's atoning death. But it doesn't necessarily follow that where there is atonement, there's immediate healing. And in this passage, Matthew affirms that whatever healing occurs is a result of Christ's redemptive 
work, but it doesn't necessarily mean that healing will always occur now as a result of that work. We should never pray, cease praying for the sick. Um, how, many, how many prayers were offered for Tom Lively? I know, I know many of you prayed for him. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God answered in a way that Tom is now healed, but he wasn't healed here upon earth, and one day he awaits that resurrection, resurrection body. So wrapping all of these passages up, what do, what do we come up with? Here is Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Christ, Emmanuel, Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins. Sermon on the Mount, here are his authoritative words. And it's all preceded there. The Beatitudes are preceded by this. Repent, repent and believe in the gospel. And if you don't do that, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And then his authoritative works show as fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and pattern and in type that here's the Messiah. You miss him. You've missed it all. This is the most important person. He has come. He has been born of a virgin. He's taken on human flesh. He entered into temptation. He did not fail. He was baptized to identify himself with the people, to fulfill those patterns of righteousness in the Old Testament. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he willingly died upon a cross, six hours, three of light, three of darkness, and he finally said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead, and 40 days later, he ascended into heaven like it's described in Acts chapter 1, and the angel said to him as they're looking up, what do you marvel? He's coming back in the very same way, bodily, to earth, and he will rule and reign. So are you fully convinced that what God has promised he is also able to do? Do you have the forgiveness of sin? Have you trusted him? It's the only place your sins are going to be forgiven. And taking out that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh that says, okay, I want to obey God and begin discipleship. Is your faith a pistuin ace Christon? Are you believing into Christ? Into Christ is your trust in him. Jerry's going to come and lead us Pray him that my hope is in the Lord. I hope you can say that. My hope is in the Lord.